Welcome to Episcopals, bringing you the latest in faith-based advocacy from the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. We are back here on Episcopals with another episode on General Convention and Executive Council resolutions. Uh, again, I know the church nerds are excited about such a statement, but really, we promise this is interesting material with real-world applications. Is that right, Susie? Absolutely, Alan. Absolutely, yes. I am Alan, your host for this episode, and I'm with Susie Faria, our policy advisor advisor covering advocacy on creation care or the environment. It's one of the three pillars of presiding bishop Michael Curry's primacy, a central issue to all of us and all of God's creation. It's great to have you back on the show, Susie. I'm very happy to be back. I very much enjoy being on Episcopals. Awesome. So for folks just tuning in, in brief this time, General Convention and Executive Council are the elected leadership bodies of the church that create the public policy resolutions that then empower our office to advocate to the U.S. federal government in Washington, D.C. Our office can only advocate based on these resolutions, and there are decades of them on hundreds of issues, including a vast array on the environment, which is what we're talking about today. Um, Although actually, really, this area on the environment has seen a lot of new growth in church resolutions uh, in recent years. So excited to dive into this with you, Susie. And for starters, a pretty broad question. What can you tell us about the resolutions of the church on the environment? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very good question. Um, I think the nice part about some of our resolutions is, like you mentioned, in the last uh, two to three general conventions, we've gotten a lot more specifically on this topic, which has definitely helped aid my work. If you look pre-2015, there's still quite a few, but from 2015 to the current, to the present day, we've had a lot more. There's definitely multiple that have come from every general convention since then, as well as uh, there's about at least one from each executive council that has popped up as well. So I have a lot more to work with, but that's also a good thing because it, it has helped guide my work in a more uh, substantive way. I think some of the more notable things to mention are just the church's strong commitment to climate change as a concept and the belief that humans have caused it. Uh, I know that in especially Christian circles, this is not a guarantee. And so to be a part of a church that fully embraces the science behind this and knows that humans are directly involved in changing global temperatures and things like that is a very good thing. Um, I think it's a very needed voice in this space. Um, So I'd say, and they also directly call on the federal government to do something about this, both at the, the domestic and the international level. I think a couple of other really key points from General Convention are the focus on environmental justice. So talking about impoverished communities, talking about BIPOC communities, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities that have historically been subjugated to the worst effects of pollution, of fossil fuel extraction, um, and, and other really hazardous things that have decreased their health. Um, in those areas as well. I think the church has also taken a really excellent focus on that as like an intersectional issue in that way of, hey, climate issues are important. Everybody's going to be affected by climate change, but these communities specifically have dealt with the worst effects of it so far and will continue to if we do not work to improve climate and in, in addition, improve 
uh, pollution, extractive industries, et cetera, to help kind of improve human health, access to food, things like that. So there's a, a real kind of holistic approach in a lot of the language from General Convention, which I appreciate. Um, and it helps me work alongside some of our other colleagues in this issue as well for things like food security, um, sometimes migration issues, et cetera, um, that the climate touches as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we um, talked in our last episode a bit about how difficult it is to kind of uh, categorize our church resolutions, you know, into particular buckets uh, is the term we, we sometimes use. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a great point to, to show how issues of the environment are connected to other topics uh, and, and overlap. Um, so appreciate that, that broader overview. Um, so I'm curious, what are some of the resolutions uh, that are particularly helpful or, or notable um, knowing that, you know, there are others, all of them are, you know, have an impact, but are there a couple of kind of top of mind right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I will directly mention one that this is a little bit of one that kind of reaffirms some language that previous resolutions have mentioned, but uh, 2018 DO81, a call for community development efforts and government policy initiatives to address transition to clean energy is one that I reference pretty regularly. Uh, again, this this includes things like language that, hey, climate change is real, but it also affects certain communities more so than others. Uh, I think a clean, tra uh, a just transition is something that gets brought up some somewhat regularly in these resolutions. And so that's a focus on moving away from, from fossil fuels, but also making sure that in doing so, we're not leaving behind communities that rely on fossil fuels. We're giving opportunities uh, for for income, essentially, in other industries, uh, which is a very important piece of this. I think um, there's a, several resolutions, but I'll just reference one here. Uh, 2018 CO20, urge support for carbon accounting policies and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so this is just one example of kind of the accountability aspect when it comes to carbon emissions and and ensuring that we're tracking these things, but also working to reduce them. Um, carbon emissions are kind of this really broad concept, and we use carbon emissions specifically to address kind of greenhouse gas gases in general, which are all contributing to global warming and climate change. Um, so that's a really important aspect. Um, and then to kind of get into a little bit about... Um, kind of some of the more intersectional areas and how climate affects areas that you may not directly think of. Uh, 2015 AO91, Advocate for a Just Food System. I think this is a really great example of how creation care work can be so intersectional and be included in other aspects beyond just things directly related to climate. Um, and so this one talks about food insecurity and health issues related to food access, but it also wants to make sure that our food systems are sustainable. Um, and that means ecologically sound, which I greatly appreciate. And then there are several resolutions to this, but I'll just reference specifically 2018 BO26, which is endorse the UN Sustainable Development Goals uh, as a basis for policy for action. The SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals, I'm sure you'll hear a little bit more about with Patricia when she's on at some point, um, our international policy advisor. But um, those kind of are, they're from the UN, the United Nations, and they really broadly describe all the movements that are necessary to um, 
to achieve a, a better, a healthier world and a more equitable world as well. So they talk about it. As far as the environment goes, they talk about clean water, health, access to food, clean air, and other kind of aspects that are the intersection of human health and, and sustainability and climate change. So those are just a small handful. Uh, I think Notably, there's a specific resolution on the Arctic Refuge that I work on quite frequently, and there's also a specific Executive Council resolution about Oak Flat, which those are two um, indigenous issues that are directly related to extractive industries. So Oak Flat is related to mining, copper mining specifically, that the Episcopal Church has supported protecting. Um, and the Arctic Refuge is to prevent drilling or um, for oil and gas extraction in the region, also in solidarity with the Gwich'in people, um, different group of people than who uh, are trying to protect Oak Flat, but still a very notable uh, intersection of indigenous issues with climate work. So, Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for, for diving into those uh, with me today. You know, it, it we have some great colleagues over in our creation care team that do a lot of I use the word tangible, but perhaps that's that's oversimplifying it. But they do a lot of, of tangible work within the church uh, on creation care. How are parishes and dioceses, dioceses, you know, changing their own structures and programming and land use to uh, lessen our environmental impact? Um, how are we thinking about it theologically? What are what, what does creation care mean? You know, when we're thinking about animals and plants, but also humans and and the discrepancies that you raise. Um, and I think. Uh, while we are doing all of that great work, we also think about the scale of impact we can have. We, we mentioned this in our advocacy trainings, but advocacy at the federal level uh, sometimes means going for uh, issues that we can impact that will have a larger uh, that have a larger scale. Um, and you you named many of those and um, what you just reviewed. So thank you for doing that. And you know another thing that jumps out uh, at me as well, and this is sort of a, a byproduct of the intersectional nature, I think of some of these issues is that they get difficult uh, sometimes. I think there's a lot of uh, anxiety, understandably, around uh, more partisan um, public discourse, but there's also some political discourse that's just addressing hard situations that, that have solutions that are elusive. Um, and that often happens with the Oak Flat example. You know, we're wanting to both uh, honor indigenous peoples and, and indigenous and, and their rights, uh, while also pursuing a transition to clean energy. And sometimes the tra transition to clean energy means extracting, you know, earth metals that are necessary for that technology. And so how do we navigate, you know, upholding both of those um, goals, the values behind them? Um, you know, it's really just a tough question. Uh, so I wanted to highlight that for, for listeners and um, what uh, Susie works on uh, in our environmental advocacy. Absolutely. Um, and I think yeah. the Arctic Refuge plays a big role in that. There's a reason why the resolution specifically names the Gwich'in people, um, because they are fully opposed to drilling in that region. But there are other indigenous groups that are not opposed to it. And that's for very good economic reasons. They want the job opportunities that drilling would would provide. Um, and so I think that's a really important aspect to to remember when is that you know, not all solutions are going to work all of the time. 
Um, and I think it's really a wonderful call to be really creative in solutions for climate work and also recognizing that in addressing one issue, you can also address climate work. So, you know, there's there's no one size fits all. And I think, yes, it's a very daunting task of because it's so huge and it's kind of hard to conceptualize. But it also provides a lot of opportunity, you know, when you're talking about warfare, you can also remember climate issues. When you're talking about food security, you can remember climate issues. When you're talking about migration, you can remember climate issues. And I think it, it because it's so broad, it also offers the opportunity for it to be included in a much wider variety of, of policies than, than some other areas that are much more specific. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we aim when we can to, to, uh, to emphasize the importance of the marginalized voices, going back to what you mentioned, you know, closer to the beginning of our conversation today um, and looking at those who are most impacted uh, by, you know, the, um, by pollution, by environmental policies, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we've talked about, I think some, maybe some folks aren't as familiar with Arctic Refuge or, or Oak Flat, although we message about those two things quite a bit. But, you know, environmental issues and especially dynamics like climate change, they develop over time and they may not be top of mind for all of us all the time. They're not necessarily news headlines. Um, occasionally with a natural disaster, we'll get that. Um, but what are some areas that we're advocating on or that you are advocating on that aren't talked about as much? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a very worthwhile question. Um I will avoid talking as much about Arctic Refuge and Oak Flat just because I feel we've covered them um, so far. They're still active issues that I, I check in on regularly and, you know, we still send out our alerts and everything. And I encourage you to take action if you haven't or if you haven't in a while, please do. Um, I think our our broader environmental policies, those can be a little bit tricky sometimes to find policies or legislation from from Congress that kind of where there's an, a nice middle ground of like, all right, the church very much can support the the work that's in this in this specific piece of legislation, and therefore we can do something like an action alert about. I think the um, environmental justice piece more broadly. You know, we talked about specific indigenous examples, but we are still calling for kind of those just transition pieces in climate work. Um, and so that's highlighted in something like we did with the Environmental Justice for All Act, which really puts emphasis on environmental justice communities, those who have been historically placed near high pollution areas, whether that's a port or near a landfill, near highways. There's all sorts of environmental justice communities. And so, you know, consistently working towards that. Um, I also think... Um, environmental justice, I just want to highlight that environmental justice communities have been around since the Industrial Revolution, arguably, arguably before that, depending on how you define it. Um, but I think it's that language of environmental justice, or EJ, as we kind of sometimes occasionally condense it to, has only very recently become mainstream and only within the last year become in policy language. And I think that's an example of how this kind of work kind of evolves. 
you know, you have something that has been an issue for a long time. It stays underground or just below the surface. It's not something that most people know about. And then all of a sudden it'll have a breakthrough. It'll become common language within a population. And then it some, and then it can work its way into policy. And that's kind of the structure that we see, not just with climate issues, but with other areas as well. So environmental justice, very key. And it's really cool to see it end up in legislation after so many years of it kind of bubbling up. So that's one thing. I also just want to mention some of the international work. Um, you mentioned the creation care team. I will also mention our global partnerships team because the three offices together kind of work on COP uh, the COP or the UNFCCC, um, which is a UN. Oh my goodness, I'm so bad with acronyms sometimes. But it's a massive there are UN. A lot of them between the, church <laughs> and the government. There are a lot of acronyms out there. We like to say we live in alphabet soup, um, yes. but it's it's a UN conference on climate change. It happens every year. Um, I've been talking about it a lot in our weekly network calls. It's coming up this year at the end of November into December. Um, but a lot of important international climate work comes out of there. That's how the world kind of builds consensus around what it's going to do about climate. And it has been um, especially for for many decades, I don't want to undermine the work that has gone in before the Paris Agreement in 2012, but the Paris Agreement was a really serious turning point um, for that discussion internationally. And so alongside our partners at Creation Care and Global Partnerships, we, we have been working on international climate work in regards to the COP conference and the promises the federal government, the U.S. federal government has made. Um, so that's another big chunk of my time. I'm trying to, I feel like there's so many other areas. Biodiversity is one I haven't mentioned. Um, we had a very recent biodiversity resolution come out of this most recent, um, this most recent, or not most recent, but this year, one of this year's executive councils. I believe it was February. It may have been a different one, but Regardless, I'm still working with it. And uh, biodiversity is just a really critical piece of environmental um, work and in sustainability and human health. There's so many different ways that biodiversity connects with so many other aspects of what I've talked about. And so that's another area that I work on. Um, I think the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is one I talk about a lot because it's very near and dear to my heart. Um, and that plays directly into protecting endangered species and um, and biodiversity as a whole. So I'll stop there. I've been rambling for a bit. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I mean, it is, you know, there are a lot of uh, a lot of church policies to cover um, and a lot of work to be done in this space. Uh, I do want to ask one more quick question as, as we sort of wrap up here. And, and you talked about this with the uh, uh, environmental justice sort of example, but we talk a lot in our advocacy trainings and my civil discourse work uh, about the importance of vocabulary uh, and how, you know, depending on our audience, we may need or want to use different terms to describe essentially the same thing. So I'm wondering how that comes up in your work. Yeah, no, it's a good question. The church, and I'm this is not a fault of the church at all. I think it makes perfect sense for a church, but they use the term creation care a lot. Um, and I think it's a beautiful term and I think it, it's rooted in, in excellent like liturgy and things like that. I think it makes sense. However, it doesn't, it kind of falls on deaf ears in secular circles. Um, and so I can't really use creation care on the hill and ex without explaining it. 
Um, so I tend to just use environmental work or environmental stewardship, or I kind of alter some of the language to something that's a, a somewhat secular equivalent, um, just for the sake of understanding. Um, certain terminologies are, you mentioned partisanship, certain things are, are more partisan than others. Um, you know, environmental justice as a, as a concept can be a little bit of a hot topic. Some people are less willing to admit that that's an issue than others. Um, and so, you know, I, I also, and, you know, the church uses a term called eco-justice, which is not one that I specifically use. I focus much more on environmental justice because that is a that is a terminology that's used more broadly in policy spaces and especially secular spaces. Um, so those terms are great for the context of the church. I tend to avoid using them, or if I do use them, I have to explain what they are to a, a more in a more secular space, like on the Hill. Um, so that those are a couple of broader examples. I think, um, you know, in terms of like partisan language, there are just certain you can still talk about climate without necessarily, you know, if you're with somebody who doesn't says that climate change isn't real, then, you know, you can still talk about environmental issues. You just need to get a little bit more creative with which ones and how you phrase them. So, um, you know, in some more conservative spaces or, or occasionally climate denying spaces, you can still talk about biodiversity. Um, you just may not use the term biodiversity. You talk about making sure that species are like are at good levels for hunting and things like that or for forestry um there are ways to talk about these issues that just involve slight switches in language um which is just kind of a necessary piece of some of the work we do yeah um yeah but i'm still representing the church even when i have to kind of change how which which terms i use <laughs> yeah no it is our work definitely involves a lot of interpretation <laughs> at times yeah, it's Both an ways. interesting Both middle ways. ground to be between Capitol Hill and the church, for sure. <laughs> well, thank you for your time today, Susie. I've really appreciated learning more from you about our advocacy to protect people, uh, the elements that make up the earth, the animals and the plants that live here. Uh, it's really great to spend some time with you today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed myself. <laughs> yeah, good, good. And for listeners tuning in, again, please know that you can explore church resolutions on your own through the archives website uh, for general convention and executive council resolutions and in our policy fraction index for all public policy related resolutions that guide our office. Thanks to all in the church who are helping to move our policies forward and taking action through our advocacy opportunities with the Episcopal Public Policy Network. So until next time, take care. The Office of Government Relations aims to represent the policy priorities of the Episcopal Church to the U.S. government in Washington, D.C., and to influence policy and legislation on critical issues, all while highlighting voices and experiences of Episcopalians and Anglicans globally. The Office facilitates the Episcopal Public Policy Network, a grassroots network of Episcopalians engaged in the Ministry of Public Policy Advocacy. Take action and learn more by following the links in the description. The Episcopal's podcast is produced by the staff of the Office of Government Relations with support from our podcast engineer, Ellie Singer, and project manager, Chris Sikama. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Episcopal's.
You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.